book of Philippians, chapter 1, beginning in 27 and ends in 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Amen. Thank you be to God. Lord God, I thank you for your word, Lord. I thank you for worship, being able to sing songs to you, God. And God, as we uh, sing these songs, God, of uh, what we to believe, we to believe true about you, God, what we to believe uh, true about how we should follow you. We haven't perfected it. We never will. We know that, God. So I pray that you would help us to desire you, God, on our inside, in our heart. God, I pray that you would, God, um, help us to wait on you. God, these are things that are hard for us. Lord, you know that. I pray for faithfulness, God. I pray for obedience. Lord, as we hear your word preached, God, I pray that you would give us tender hearts to your Holy Spirit. We love you. We come in your name alone. Amen. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, team. And uh, I said this in the early, this crew gets here early. Would you thank them for their ministry? They do an amazing job. So grateful for them. If you'll find your Bibles, turn to the book of Philippians. And uh, we will continue in this series, The Journal of Joy. A Journal of Joy. And as we do, I want to also welcome all of you who are worshiping with us online. It is an honor that you from your living rooms or workplaces or your cars, be careful, I put that in a comment, wherever you may be, thank you for joining us. You honor us by your presence now. And some of you go and, and listen later and thank you for doing that too. Several years ago, I went to New York City for the first time, the only time I've been there uh, to be in the city, but it's the first time I've been and I had no clue what to expect. No clue. Um, I got there and discovered that people walk down the sidewalks and never speak to one another. Uh, as a matter of fact, they don't even look at each other. They just walk down the sidewalk and do their deal. I discovered that. I also discovered that, uh, that, that you shouldn't speak to them. It's not going to change them. Uh, I learned the hard way that you should know how to call a cab um, and not get in a car with a strange person. I, I learned that the really hard way, uh, that uh, trip to New York City. And then about two years ago, I went to Nashville, Tennessee. That was a completely different experience. Nashville, um, uh, the city, the streets are loud. Music kind of pours out into the streets. And uh, there are aspiring musicians who are at work. And they're singing in all the bars downtown. And you can smell food everywhere. And it's, you know, I imagine hot chicken that you smell. But Nashville was completely, totally different. 
Uh, what uh, I am reminded of, I've only lived in a small city, Columbia, South Carolina, the, the largest city I've ever lived in, and that's small by any uh, stretch of the imagination, but uh, every city has its vibe. Every city has its feel. That's what I learned. And here, if you, some of your Bibles may say this down where it'll give kind of a variant translation. If you will look at verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy. My ESV says, only behave as citizens worthy. It appeals to this idea, the word uh, citizen is the word P-O-L-I-S, polis is the word for city. So live like you're from another city. That's what Paul says here to the Philippians. Live like you're from another city. Well, what does he mean by that? He means that we on earth are to live as citizens of heaven. Live on earth as citizens of heaven. And so if we are to do that, how? How do we live on this planet earth as a citizen of heaven? And Paul gives three ways to do so. I want to talk about those this morning. There's nothing, if you're here this morning looking for some golden nugget of truth that you're going to tuck into your theological handbag and walk out of here with, I have nothing for you. But if you're looking for some tried and true principles for living on earth as a citizen of heaven, if you will receive from the word of God, I have not from me, but from God's word, a word for you this morning. And the first way is live worthy by standing firm in one spirit. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. If you could see this in its original language, and I don't mean to throw that out a lot. It's, I'm no Greek expert. I just read people who are. And they say, this says, only worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's how this begins. The vibe of a citizen of heaven is the gospel. The vibe of heaven. New York City has its vibe. Nashville has its vibe, and the vibe of a follower of Jesus is the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? If that is our vibe, if, if that is what you and I are to be all about, what is it? I don't know if you recall, and I recognize not all of you have been watching through the whole Philippian series or been here, either one. But I would say to you that, uh, remind you and all of us that when Paul went to Philippi originally, when he went to Philippi originally to preach, he got thrown in jail. And when he got thrown in jail, he and Silas are sitting in jail because they took the money away from them. They took their money maker away and they're sitting in jail. And Paul and Silas begin to sing. And as they begin to sing, the earth begins to quake and they're, bro they're broken out of jail. 
Now, I understand we had an earthquake this morning. Isn't that bizarre? I didn't feel it. Uh, I was standing on the stage next door, and I'm right beside Dave, and Josh's video is playing, and the screen is doing this. And I said, Dave, what's wrong with the screen? He said, I don't know. And he gave some explanation that made no sense to me, but I'm used to that from him. So I just let it be, let it go. No, you know, I'm not, Dave just knows things I don't. That's what I meant by that. But at any rate, so I just let it go. I get out of the service and they said, earthquake in Sparta, 5.1. Some people in our service said they felt somebody was shaking the back of their chair. And so Paul gets busted out of jail, he, uh, potentially because of an earthquake, and the jailer comes to Christ. Incidentally, it's just shot through my mind, Wendy and I and our life group have been doing a Devo. If you have the Bible app, there is a Devo by Matt Chandler called To Live as Christ Through Philippians. It's just a week long. It is really good to go along with this series. So Paul is busted out. He's busted out of jail, uh, potentially, but doesn't. Shares the gospel, and then he leaves the city. Here, there he sang a hymn. Here he writes one in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, one of the most famous passages in all of the New Testament. Paul writes this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul will write that here. So let me talk about what the gospel is and tune in. If you are in second grade, you can understand what I'm about to say. If you are in fourth grade, you can understand what I'm about to say. If you are watching me and you haven't finished high school, you can understand what I'm about to say. The gospel is not complex. It is not over our heads. It's often past our hearts, but it is not over our heads. The gospel is completely understandable. And so if you are in here, as some of you children are sitting in here, moms, dads, I want you to give them a quiz. I mean this, kids, I want you to tune in to me right now. Here is the gospel. Here's what Paul writes. The gospel is that Jesus emptied himself so that we could become full. Jesus, Paul says he emptied himself. The gospel is that he emptied himself so that you could be full. The gospel is that Jesus humbled himself so that you could be exalted. That is the gospel. That is the good news that the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords descended, came down, and became a filthy uh, human being like you and me without ever sinning so that I could be exalted. The gospel is that Jesus died so that I can live. Now, I tell you what, we could go home right now, couldn't we? Isn't that enough? 
Do we need any more? Do we need to know any more? No, I would just say to you that the vibe of a Christian is the gospel. It is our marching orders. And so Paul introduces some accountability here. This is why I'm asking moms, dads to ask your kids. This is why. Because Paul says here that I hope that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, he says in another place he's going to send Timothy back to Philippi if he can't come. I may hear that you're standing firm in one spirit. Why does he say that? Good intentions without accountability do not transform. You can have all the good intentions in the world, but if somebody in your life doesn't know you and love you enough to speak truth to you, you will not change. We all gotta have it. That's why our life group ministry is vital. You'll hear at the end of today that we're announcing a candidate to lead out in this ministry of life groups at Grace This is why we built a new building with part of the space that looks just like living rooms so you can come sit in this building or sit in your own living room or do it virtually or by text or whatever you do. I have said in life group meetings this week that the reason that this church has been strong since March, not my preaching, not Alan Michael, not Adrian's preaching, No, it has been the core. We have over 600 people in this church, in life groups. That has been the core strength of this church. And if we are vital through whatever this looks like, that will continue to be it. You and I need accountability. To stand firm means your commitment has become a conviction. Like you're saying, I'm committed to this and I'm convicted to do it. So what are they standing firm in? One political party. Is that what it says? No. No, let me say to you, some of you actually think that if your man is elected, everything's going to turn around. We've been at this for how many years? Has there been one single president ever in the history of this country who has led us morally back to Jesus Christ? No. No, stand firm in one what? Spirit, in one spirit. While the ESV renders this with a little S, many commentators believe, and I'll jump in with them, that this is a big S. The spirit, stand firm in the spirit of the Christ. So who's the spirit? We talked about the gospel, so moms, dads, here's quiz number two. Students, are you listening up? Kids, are you tuning in? Here's quiz number two. Who is the spirit? The Holy Spirit is a person. He is the third person of the Trinity. So he is a person. And as a person, like real people, persons do, he grieves. He is saddened. He, as God, the third person of the Trinity, intercedes. He prays for us. He testifies to Jesus He speaks about Jesus. He created in Genesis 1-2 and still does today new life in you. He has a mind and he can be blasphemed. Jesus in John 14, 15, and 16 called him a helper, a counselor, advocate. 
And he, when Jesus ascended, became Jesus' earthly successor. He carries out the work of Jesus today. He is the Spirit. Now Paul is painting a vivid picture here because there's imagery that is military in nature. The Spirit is the Spirit of Christ leading the charge as commander-in-chief. That's the picture Paul gives. Standing firm in one spirit. What will the commander-in-chief of the Christian church do? Only lead us one direction at a time against the enemy that he will identify. He will not lead us where he will not go before us. He will not lead us where he will not come behind us. I must say to you this morning that if you belong to Jesus, when you went to bed last night, the Holy Spirit did not. He, he was very much in your room. He was very much in your house. I must say to you that when you walked in these doors, the Holy Spirit came in with you and in you. He is the Spirit. This echoes Jesus' prayer in John 17. Some have called this, I think rightly so, the Lord's Prayer. Uh, what does he say in verse 11? And I am no longer in the world. He's praying to his Father, but they are in the world. Who's they? They are in the world. I am no longer in the world, but Nikki is in the world. I am no longer in the world, but Janice is in the world. I am no longer in the world, but Judy is in the world. Now, how does he pray for Janice and Judy and Nikki? He says, Holy Father, keep them in your name. This morning, you need to receive that. Jesus said, Holy Father, Holy Father, keep Ethan in your name. Holy Father, keep Jim in your name. Holy Father, keep Shane in your name. Holy Father, Holy Father, keep Lamar in your name. Which you have given me. Who? All of you who know him. Gift from the Father to Christ. That they may be one even as we are one. If we're going to live on earth as citizens of heaven, we're going to do it by standing firm in one spirit. Secondly, we're going to do it by striving side by side in one mind. With one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Well, one mind would naturally flow out of one spirit, but what does Paul mean? I'll tell you the word in Greek, it's psyche. And, and you hear that and you go, oh, psyche. Well, that word's used a lot these days, and nobody knows what it means. It just, you just talk about somebody's psyche, right? You may be watching too much Oprah or something. And you talk about, or Dr. Phil, you, you talk about psyche, but, but no, the word uh, comes from the Greek word for soul. It's deep in you. It is uh, the deep part of you. Aristotle used the phrase one soul to portray unanimity and friendship. He said this, friends have one soul between them. Friends' goods are common property. Friendship is equality. 
There's something abiding about a brother in Christ if you're a brother in Christ. There's just something powerful about that. You may discover as you're in your life group or as you meet somebody that, that you're closer to somebody who knows Jesus than somebody who shares your own blood. Why is that? There is a deep soul connection. The best marriages have this, right? Godly husband, godly wife, love Jesus, love Jesus, share the love of Jesus with one another. There is the deepest intimacy that you can imagine. Paul's image of striving together with one soul conveys the idea of such unity among Christians that they are almost working together as one person as one person. That word striving, I don't know why I'm throwing out so many Greek words, but they all will make sense to you. Athleo, A-T-H-L-E-O. You'll see it on the screen. Well, what does that mean? Well, you look at it and it's the word what? Athlete. Well, I have zero experience being one of them. You know that. The only thing I can do is run. And that's it. Like I can put one foot in front of the other. That's it. Nothing that handles a stick or a ball or anything like that. I can run. But there is a sport that fascinates me that I would be also horrible at because I can't swim. But it fascinates me. It's rowing. You'll see some images on the screen. And I went just to look it up because I've always been fascinated by it. And would like to watch it in person because I would find it fascinating to see how it all works. And I found an article by Bruce Eckfeldt, and uh, he was a businessman, I think now retired, but does consulting in New York City, quite successful. And he was on a championship rowing team in college, and uh, he writes about it. Um, he says, getting eight guys to swing four-meter-long oars at 36 strokes a minute and stay afloat is not easy. 36 strokes a minute. Eight guys. He says, here's the thing. In an eight-person boat, each rower has one oar, four on port and four on starboard. If one side pulls harder than the other, the boat turns and tips. If one side's oars are raised higher than the other, the boat tips. He said, so when we won and they beat the Canadian team that they... uh, 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 rode against by, I think he said, two boat lengths, which was a remarkable, decisive victory. He says, during our championship race, we entered a new level as a team where we became one with each other and the boat. I'm going to say to you, I've passed here for 20 years, almost in January, 20 years here. I've seen, never seen in my life a more difficult time to be on one boat and row in the same direction. I've just never seen it. Not in this body, but in this country. I've never seen more varied opinions on things that are rather insignificant than I see today. We are so easily drawn to the edges. And this leads to, I think, my favorite person on the boat, that person in the front. She's number nine. She's called the coxswain, C-O-X-S-W-A-I-N. He said on their boat, she was 104 pounds, so she had to carry uh, uh, 16 more pounds to meet the minimum 120-pound weight. What was her job? 
you can tell she's not facing the way they're facing. And her job is to sit on that boat, and they have 13 meters. Their lane is 13 meters. This gives whole new dimension to stay in your lane. All right, 13 meters, and they have nine meters with oar span. So you got 13 meters. You only got two meters on each side that she must keep all of them in. So what does she do? She watches the line that they're supposed to go down, and she watches all the, the men who are oaring, and she calls out commands, and she tells that one harder, this one less, this one more, this one up, this one down. The whole time, she's calling out orders the entire time. Never touches an oar. When I think of this, I, I love this imagery. I am convinced this is the work of the Spirit. I'm convinced that the spirit is like that coxswain at the, at, the, at the front of the boat and he's calling out and we must be in tune. We must listen. Why? Because it's just a small thing at times. It's not what's the difference between right and wrong. That's pretty stinking obvious. It's what is better and what is best. That's not so obvious. We need wisdom. He writes, going in the wrong direction as fast as you can doesn't get you any closer to the finish line. <laughs> if you've ever ridden with a man who won't get directions, you know how that feels. He says, it turns out that pulling as hard as you can without pulling together actually slows the boat down. Athleo, strive side by side. So if, if we had a coxswain in our boat, what would she be saying? There are three things she'd be saying. These are things that we settled on years ago, and they still are our three. Jesus over everything, heart change that leads to life change, and others before ourselves. These work in an earthquake they work in a pandemic. They work when the diagnosis is grim. These are our values. This is what matters most to us at this church. There are a lot of other things, but they're not our lane. And they're not going to be our lane. We've, we've just settled on this when the waters weren't so choppy. We, we settled on this when life wasn't so crazy. And we are convinced if we'll continue to listen, we'll hear Jesus over everything, heart change that leads to life change, others before ourselves. These are our values. This is how we how we row. Third, if we're going to live on earth as citizens of heaven, we'll live worthy by being unafraid of two opponents. And not frightened in anything by your opponents, Paul says to them, Paul who sits in prison writing this letter, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction. But of your salvation and that from God. That word frightened, terrified, is the word. It, it's a term used to describe 
horses in battle that get startled and could throw off the person on the horse when they're in the heat of the battle. Frightened by by whom? Terrified. Who, Who could throw us off? Opponents. The word is used eight times. It's an adversary, one who is set against. Paul says there are enemies within the Philippian church and there are enemies without. Now, let's be clear about who enemies are and who they are not. Your enemy is not who hurt your feelings. No, Paul urges Euodia and Syntyche to get along in four. He doesn't call them enemies, but in chapter 3, he calls some people out and calls them dogs. Now, I know these days to call somebody a dog is a rather big compliment. Dogs are buckled into car seats. I was coming up 70 yesterday and saw somebody with one of those weird things with three wheels. This man, like he spent a lot of money on his weird thing with three wheels, bright yellow. Midlife crisis, I don't know. He's older. He's in one side, dog in the other, riding down the road. So to call somebody a dog today might be, you know, people call dogs their children, their grandchildren. They call them all kinds of things. But in Paul's day, dogs ran rabid through the streets. And in three Two, he says there are dogs who are Jewish Christian intruders who are seeking to persuade the Gentile Christians that it was necessary to become Jewish in order to belong to the righteous people of God. He, they were called Judaizers. And their idea and their thought was this. In order to be a Christian, you have to be a Jew first. And you have to go through Jewish rites, namely circumcision. Why would Paul call such a one a dog? He calls such a one a dog because it's legalism. He calls such a one a dog because it's saying that in order to become a Christian, the cross isn't enough. The cross isn't enough. Please hear me. In a room like this, in a church like this, with pre-COVID, we had a 1,000 people in attendance on a Sunday morning. You will have varying opinions. You will pull into the parking lot, and you will see Trump stickers, and you will see uh, Biden stickers. Yes, you will. This is the reality. In a room like this, there are people and and watching online who think Jesus is going to come back before the millennium and who think he's going to come back after the millennium and some people who just think he's going to come back. There will be those varying opinions. So who are the dogs? Do you know who the dogs are? The dogs are anybody who says that the cross of Jesus is not enough. Amen? That's a dog. And we better call him a dog. We better call him out. Why? Because Jesus hung on a cross for my sins. He became empty so that I could be full. He was humbled so I could be exalted. We're back to the gospel again, aren't we? So if you... In this crazy day we live, expect everybody around you to dot their I's like you do and cross their T's like you do, then you, my friends, will lose the gospel. And the spirit who is calling out says, there was a Christ who hung on the cross, and that Christ who hung on the cross is the Christ who rose from the dead. And that Christ who rose from the dead is the Christ who is coming back. And that Christ who is coming back is worthy of every song we can 
ever sing, of every word we could ever say, of everything we could ever do. He alone is worthy of our praise and our worship. Amen? He alone is worthy. Nobody else, no one else, nothing else. Jesus and Jesus alone is worthy. And if we lose that message this morning, if we lose sight of that, we will be in another lane. And the cross stands on Golgotha's hill and we look that way and somehow we're far off. Paul says, not frightened by your opponents within, dogs who detract from the gospel and your opponents without, Rome, who wants to pounce. Gosh, my time is up. I've, what in the world? All right, so I need to calm down. I have, to, I have to share this with you, though. Verse 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's been granted to you, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. I've sat with more people at this place who've taught me how to suffer in the last 20 years, and it's blown my mind. C.S. Lewis rightly said, pain is his megaphone. It is the megaphone of God. Paul says, uses a very intentional word, engaged in the same conflict you saw I had. Paul's imagery, his metaphors go back and forth between military and athletic. And that word conflict is the, is the cognate for the word Arena. What was the arena? That's where athletic contests happened. The Olympics happened in the arena, but it's also where they ultimately took Christians and they turned them loose and then they would turn a, a, a wild animal into that arena and the crowds would jeer as that animal chased that Christian down ultimately to his death. Arenas. I'm not sure what arena we may end up in I'm not sure what arena you may be in now. But Paul says, even in the arena, you can live worthy. You can live worthy in the arena. Oh Lord, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. I have preached not in my strength. I have preached not in my power. This church, if we stay in our lane, will do so because we hear the abiding voice of the Spirit. May we do so. In your name I pray for your glory. Amen.